This is the sound of the Brick Celebrate Brooklyn Festival, a free outdoor concert series that has happened nearly every summer since 1979. Each year, the Bandshell at Prospect Park welcomes hundreds of thousands of people from Brooklyn, as well as bridge and tunnel guests from Manhattan who gather to watch performances by the likes of Talib Kweli, Yola Tengo, Neutral Milk Hotel, Sufjan Stevens, The National, Dirty Projectors, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, and Janelle Monae. It's a true highlight of the summer, and I'm not just saying that because this is a Brick podcast. I loved Celebrate Brooklyn long before I started working at Brick. It's such a scene, and because it's free and because Prospect Park is such a gathering place for Brooklyn anyway, this amazing cross-section of humanity turns out for the performances. On muggy summer nights, if you live anywhere close to the park, you can hear music in the distance, followed by exuberant applause. This year, of course, was different. By April, it became clear that Celebrate Brooklyn would not be proceeding as normal this summer. My colleagues had to find a way to reinvent the festival. From brick in downtown Brooklyn, except actually still at home, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and welcome to our third season of Glitter and Doom. For those of you new to the show, Glitter and Doom is a podcast about artists who are tackling the most pressing issues of today, from systemic racism to climate change through their work. Last season, we focused on art that grappled with isolation, quarantine, and loneliness. Relatable. We talked to Ojuri Latulo, who created artwork while in solitary confinement, and we explored the ledger art of Plains Indians who were taken as prisoners of war in the late 19th century. This season, we're tackling the topic of reinvention. It's been nine months since New York first shut down because of COVID. And while we're still socially distancing and community looks very different than it did in the before times, we're adapting to this new normal. We're reinventing how to work and school our children and go on first dates and support our loved ones. And it's not all successful, but we're figuring it out. And so are artists. From theater makers creating shows for audiences of one to musicians who are hosting virtual concert series. So, back to Celebrate Brooklyn. My colleagues who work in the festival knew that they'd have to reinvent it, but they wanted to stay true to the spirit of Celebrate Brooklyn, of bringing people together through art and culture. So, the concert component moved online. You can check out the performances by musicians like Common and Angelique Kijo on Brick's YouTube channel. But what about Celebrate Brooklyn's physical home? Would the Prospect Park Bangel just sit there? I am Alyssa DuVernay. I grew up in Queens. Hi, my name's Mildred Beltre. I've been living in Crown Heights where we are now for, is it 21 years, Alyssa? I think it was since 1998. So we might be yeah. looking at like 22 uh -huh. years. Mildred and Oesa live in the same building in Crown Heights. Mildred on the first floor, Oesa on the fourth in the penthouse suite, as she likes to say. There's about 17 apartments in their building, which is one of three in a small complex. Our block is sort of divided by a, a subway, the S train. So there's a bridge that's like the overpass for the subway and then on the other side of the block is like another big complex of buildings that are Section 8 buildings. And ours are all rent-stabilized buildings. 
Mildred and Oasa are both artists and teachers who have their own independent practices. But together, they are the Brooklyn High Art Machine. The Brooklyn High Art Machine was born out of a desire to, as artists, be part of building up community rather than being part of the destruction of communities, which is often what happens when artists start to move into an area. As native New Yorkers, Oasa and Mildred knew all about gentrification. First, the artists move into an historically black and brown neighborhood together with maybe students and queers. And then a cute coffee shop opens up serving single-origin espresso and muffins, but like fancy muffins. And next thing you know, upper-middle-class professionals are driving up rents and purchasing real estate, buying from old-timers who are suddenly sitting on multi-million-dollar townhouses. And why wouldn't they sell and move to Yonkers and have enough money to live on for the rest of their days? Mildred and Oasa wanted to acknowledge their role as gentrifiers and create art with their neighbors as a way to build community. So, they decided to weave into a chain-link fence. I don't, I'm not sure where the idea came from. I certainly had never woven into a fence. Neither had Oasa. I mean, who has? And so that first year, we bought some sheets, and we sat in the park with Oasa's daughter, and... <laughs> cut them into strips, which took probably, I don't know, like a week or a couple of weeks. And then we started weaving into the fence. And I would say the first message I think was really direct. The first message was, we are still here. It was just speaking to all the new people who were moving into the neighborhood and felt like they were pretending that there was no one here when they got here, letting them know that there are people here. They're not discovering the new frontier. People would like stop and be like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Who are you? <laughs> what was your answer to those questions? I think it was mostly, I don't know. For your neighbors. <laughs> we were figuring it out as we went along. And now in hindsight, right. I think like we were trying to figure out a way to subvert the presence of that bridge on our block. Even though the, it's called a bridge, it's very much so this dividing space between between neighbors and so we wanted to subvert the meaning um of this partition and make it a real bridge which is like a space to to help people connect so every year for 10 years the brooklyn high art machine has woven words and slogans into this fence in crown heights and this my colleagues at brick thought would be perfect for the prospect park band shell So talk to me a little bit about the piece that you just installed at the Bandshell. I mean, this is a space that in the summer normally has a very specific purpose. A lot of people come together physically um, in the park to listen to music at the Bandshell. Walk me through sort of that whole process of like deciding what you wanted to do with it. Without consulting with my collaboration partner, I don't know what possessed me, proposed, I proposed the Lucille Clifton quote. I proposed it because I thought it was a it was a statement that really resonated with me. I thought it was so strong. It's about survival. It's about survival of black women. It's about celebrating this. It's to me, it was like another version of we are still here. The quote that Mildred is talking about is from a poem by Lucille Clifton. If you walk by the Prospect Park bandshell, you will see these words woven into a metal grid in neon dayglow ribbon. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and failed. Oh, okay, sure. I'll read the whole poem. Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model 
born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. I'm Rachel Elizabeth Harding. I am a poet and a historian. Uh, I teach at the University of Colorado, Denver, and I'm just very happy to be here and to talk about Lucille Clifton, who I love immensely. Lucille Clifton was born in 1936 near Buffalo, New York, and she is one of the finest American poets of the 20th century. She was twice a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and from 1979 to 1985, she was the Poet Laureate of Maryland. In some ways, her poems are deceptive. They're little. Clifton often said that her works were short because she had six kids, and what mother of six has time to write Beowulf? Clifton also didn't use capital letters in her poems, so the overall effect on the printed page is of humble, little, unassuming verses. But do not be fooled. Lucille Clifton was someone who understood herself very much as an ordinary woman, as a regular person, as um, a person with the responsibilities, with the pains, with the traumas, with the histories of regular people. And I think in some ways, that decision to to write in lowercase, to use relatively little punctuation, to often not even um, give titles to the poems, is a way of emphasizing or embracing that ordinariness about her that she shares with every human being on the planet. And at the same time, she found many ways within that ordinariness to highlight the extraordinary in each of us. Because the poems are so spare and simple and uh, deceptively easy, they allow space for everybody, anybody who reads them, to, to feel a sense of welcome in the poem, even as it is so, so clearly and unapologetically grounded in Lucille Clifton's blackness, in her womanness, uh, and in her connection to spirit. Take the poem we just heard, Come Celebrate With Me. Let's hear how it starts again. Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life. It's tentative, it's pleading. She's asking, won't you celebrate with me? And she does that thing that I do when I'm writing and I catch myself using words like just or kind of or I think. She's downplaying. It's not a life, it's a kind of life that she has shaped. But then she starts gathering steam. I had no model Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. She made it up. She made herself up. The image of Clifton's one hand holding tight her other hand, when I read those lines, 
I see Clifton's outstretched hand asking for help, and another hand reaches down to grasp her firmly and pull her up. But it's her own hand. It's her own other hand, like that cartoon where somebody, maybe it's Wiley Coyote, is building a bridge out of planks, and when he runs out of planks, he just pulls the one from behind him and adds it to the front so that he's building a bridge while suspended in midair. She has had to invent herself. And now we're at the end of the poem, and keep in mind that opening line, won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life as you listen to how she ends the poem. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. I mean, this poem is only 14 lines, but we have come so far from the questioning, pleading, won't you celebrate with me, to the imperative invitation, come celebrate with me. Clifton is no longer apologizing for this kind of life. Hers is the life of someone victorious, someone who faces down something or someone that tries to invalidate her existence every day. And Clifton prevails. I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about her poem, The Lost Women. I had a feeling that you might ask. I'm happy because I love her poem, so I'm happy to read it. But um, that's not one that I just know off the top of my head. So let's see. It's called The Lost Women. The Lost Women, yes. The Lost Women. I need to know their names. Those women I would have walked with, jauntily the way men go in groups, swinging their arms, and the ones, those sweating women whom I would have joined after a hard game to chew the fat, what would we have called each other laughing, joking into our beer? Where are my games, my teens, my mislaid sisters, all the women who could have known me? Where in the world are their names? How did you guys discover each other and find out that you were both artists? So, like, Mildred gave me, like, dirty looks for about six or seven years. She avoided, like, making eye contact. It was kind of weird. First of all, she wouldn't even look my way, so I don't know how she would know what looks I was giving. (laughs) I think what really got us, I think, talking more was um I had I think I had had children for a while my my kids are quite a bit older than Mildred's children but then when Mildred had kids there were just these like cute little beans um hanging in slings from her because she has twins and it was just kind of amazing to see all of them not die so like I couldn't imagine like having two infants at the same time like how do you keep everybody alive and like including yourself. So I was, I was, I think I was really impressed with that. Um, but I think we bonded from becoming, you know, by both being moms uh, and then like realizing, oh, we're also both artists. Oh, we're, we're both also like educators. And, you know, like our parents are Caribbean immigrants. Um, like we both grew up in New York City. This is a really like, long simmering neat cute story between the two of you (laughs) 
We can go. I like. I don't know. Well, maybe we can't, but I could go on for hours. You really <laughs> don't. Do you ever get now, like ten years into this project, do neighbors come up to you and you're like, and are like, "Hey, you know what you should weave," or like, "I've got a really good one for you." Yeah. Yes. All the time, <laughs> year round. What would you care to share any of them? No. <laughs> and what, like, do you have? I mean, by now you must be pretty practiced, right? At being like, oh, like super interesting, good one. No one's ever suggested anything like strange. There was like one particular person who was just like, it's going to say Black Lives Matter, right? And we were just like, it is going to say Black Lives Matter, but it's not, we're not going to use those words. Like those, those, we're not going to use those three words, but that's essentially what it's saying. You're like so weird, actually. For the last nine years, it's also said Black Lives Matter. Right, right, exactly. (laughs) Clifton's poetry is the same. She doesn't say Black Lives Matter, but she totally says Black Lives Matter in each and every poem she writes, even ones that don't explicitly address race. I asked Professor Hardin what Clifton might have to say about this hellscape of a year. She was interviewed by Michael Glazer um, um, in an interview that was published in 2000. And Glazer, you know, was asking her what it was like being a writer of color and, you know, thinking in terms of the, the limitations that that represents. And he was quoting um, a Guyanese writer, Fred Daguiar, who said, Um, that as soon as he opened his door every day and walks out, he is received in a particular way and knows that he's part of a history, part of a reality that he has to pay attention to, whether he wants to or not. So Glazier is asking Clifton about this. And Clifton says that while what Glazier experienced is absolutely real, is absolutely true for all Black people, not just Black artists and writers. What she said is that as a writer, it's her desire and her responsibility to show that there is another meaning in the world as well. She says, and this is a quote from her, that while some people may insist that they have seen the signs that, quote, everything is going to hell. (laughs) She said that she sees something else. And if the first message is out there, then the other message should be out there too. That's a quote from Clifton. So my sense of her is that she's always reminding us of the other message, that there is another way of understanding what the world is about, who human beings are in the world, who we are to each other, who we have the potential to be, what kind of potential our society has to be, to be a healthy, multiracial, just democracy. We have that potential just as much as we have the potential potential for everything to go to hell. And Lucille Clifton is saying, let's grab on to that other vision the vision of what's possible for us together in humane interactions with each other, that the the vision of what's possible for us if we understand, truly understand who we are to each other as human beings, as family in this universe. That's, I think, 
At least that's what I take from her work. I don't know if that's what she would think, but that's what I take. I think that she would never give up on hope. And it's not a Pollyanna hope. It's not, a, oh, you know, uh, everything's going to be okay and we're not going to talk about anything bad or traumatic. That's not Lucille Clifton at all. Her hope is absolutely grounded in a full telling of the truth so that you can get to the healing and the reconciliation and the transformation that we have to have in the country. I know that for me, this week has felt more hopeful than, well, just about any week this year, or the year before that, or the year before that. And it's not a Pollyanna hope. It's a hope that we, as a nation, can take a hard look at ourselves and after months of isolation and centuries of trauma, begin the work of reinvention. We are still here. And that's our episode for this week. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to this, the start of season three of Glitter and Doom. Just a reminder to go take a look at Oasa and Mildred's work. It's up at the Prospect Park Bandshell right now.